You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So tonight we get to talk about Jesus. I'll say it again. Tonight we get to talk about Jesus, right? Okay? This is... We're, uh, I know this is a theology class, right? But tonight we are, we are talking about, this is not some kind of stuffy thing that we're doing. We're talking about the one, the only, the name above all names, uh, Jesus Christ. And so it's, uh, just, it's like the Lord has a plan or something as we prepare our hearts for Easter. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about the person of Christ. Next week we're going to talk about the work of Christ. And then the week after that we're going to baptize folks that have been changed by Christ. Okay? So uh, in two weeks from now we won't be gathering here. We'll be either in the parking lot or if it's raining we'll be in the gym. And uh, we will be baptizing and, and, uh, and just to celebrate life changes that he's uh, taking place here. So as we're going through, we've been through different elements of theology. We do come to the person of Jesus Christ, uh, which is obviously um, what I believe to be the centerpiece of Scripture. In fact, if you think through the life of Jesus Christ, he did change everything, 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 right? Everything about history, everything about our lives. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, there is no recovering from it. Everything changes through his person and his work. God brought about the only way to salvation. And so, um, honestly, when you look at a, you know, there's so many things that we're going through a class like this, but um, I can remember years ago, and, and I've told some of you this story, but I was on my first international mission trip. I was in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, we had done a presentation of the gospel to this English-speaking corner on Hitsubachi University. And there was a young man that I was talking to afterwards, and he was like, well, who was the character in the story that you were representing? And I said, oh, well, that's Jesus where he then asked me a question of which I have yet to recover from. He looked at me and said, who's Jesus? 19-year-old Japanese student. I went, what do you mean? He goes, who's Jesus? Now, how would you answer that question? Someone has no frame of reference, nothing, nothing to even start with. And so probably on that day, I don't know how well I did, but I tried to give my absolute best. Let me tell you who Jesus is, the the job of tonight and next week is to say answer that question, who was Jesus? It was That was the summer of 2000, and I think the summer of 2002, I was serving in a, another uh, mission context in the foreign mission field of Tennessee. Um, we were in the mountains of Tennessee, and I was doing a camp there in a little backyard Bible club, and there was this little boy named Rodney. I'll never forget Rodney was one who would change the whole outcome. You know, you know those kids that can come in, and like everything's good, everybody's singing, everybody's, and then Rodney comes in, and like it has now turned into a juvenile detention center. Like yeah, as soon as he showed up, and Rodney was just this, this rough kid that would just cause a lot of issues. And I remember we did a Bible story for him, and this is, this is the mountains of Tennessee, right? This is 2002. And when we did this presentation, and he says, well, who was the guy that that was? And I said, that was Jesus. And he said, who's Jesus? Now, this is Tennessee, right? And I know that's not the norm in Tennessee, but the reality is is that people have a somewhat semblance of this person called Jesus. But if they truly understand who he is, what he has done, you are either going to love and follow him or you will reject him. This middle ground of kind of playing a little bit just doesn't really work long term. And so tonight what I want us to do is we're going to look at this at kind of a narrative theology approach of, of walking through who Jesus is and some of the things that he has done. And so starting off with what the anticipation of the Christ is, because if we think through Scripture, a lot of people would rightfully in some ways say, well, Jesus Christ is on the scene when the New Testament comes. Sometimes people will say, yeah, you know, God of the Old Testament was... God the Father, the great I Am, and he was kind of rough and a little edgy and liked to blow things up. And then we're really glad Jesus came along and was real nice, right? But Jesus does not just appear in the New Testament. Uh, while his name is first mentioned there, there are traces throughout the entire Old Testament that point to Christ. All, all over the place. And so it's, it's hard for us to even jump in unless we at least do that. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that all of history longed for and all of Scripture prophesied. Um, there is not another. There were a lot of holy men that have come and holy women who have gone and a lot of people who have come and risen up and claimed to be somebody or something. There's nobody who's ever split time the way that Christ did. The fact that we are in the year 2022 means that something happened those many years ago that changed history itself. Changed the way that we, we watch it, right? So even people who don't believe in Christ, they, they will 
put the date on their check. You know, that they write out and say something's different because this year, because something happened over 2,000 years ago. Um, there is no doubt that all of the world's greatest um, art and architecture and works of brilliance, most of them have been inspired by the person of Jesus. And so culture obviously knows that there was a man named Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, who lived about 2,000 years ago. But what he did and who he truly is, that's what the discussion is all about, right? Uh, celebrities have no problem saying, I want to give all the honor to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I would also say, if he really is your Lord and Savior, you wouldn't be making some of those movies. <laughs> you wouldn't be singing some of those lyrics. You wouldn't be living the type of way that you're living. If you really, really want to thank him, something changes in you, right? And so we believe that he's a long way Messiah that everything has changed from. And the Old Testament pointed toward a coming Christ that would restore people. Uh, once again, um, Christ, if you think about that word, when I was younger, I thought that Jesus Christ, Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name, okay? That's the way I thought, okay? Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a term, it's a phrase. It's, Christ means Messiah or anointed one. So when we say Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ, we're saying that this historical figure who lived named Jesus, we believe him to be the Christ, believe him to be the Messiah, believe him to be the anointed one. And throughout the scripture, throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing towards one. You've got a, a list of different verses there. I'm not going to ask you to flip to all of them because we'll be there for a while. But I'm going to show some of these verses up here. And you might want to, you can write down the verse if you want to, or just kind of write some highlights as you look. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is after... Um, Adam and Eve has sinned, and, and all of a sudden, we've got the uh, serpent coming alongside, right? Caused a lot of issues, if you remember this. And he looks at the serpent and says, I will put enmity, or strife is another word for that. I will put enmity between you and the what? Why not Adam? Why does he call out the woman here, right? And you go, well, because Eve caused a lot of issues, Pastor, okay? like Now, why the woman? Well, because it says... Um, uh, between your offspring and her offspring, um, which once again, the word there is seed. So I'm, there's going to be strife between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And the way that we would typically think is that in a relationship, the man would have the seed, not the woman. But it, what it's saying in Genesis 3.15, there's coming a birth of which no man can get the credit for. So all the way back in Genesis 3, there, there's speaking of a virgin birth. And it says here, between your seed and her seed, and her seed is going to come bruise you in the head. When? The moment that you bruise his heel. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we know that there is a, there is a figure who claims to be born of a virgin of whom no man can get the credit for. And at the moment when he is struck in the heel on the cross is the moment when it is the death blow to Satan. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, it's prophesying about a virgin birth and prophesying about a crucifixion of which neither have even been thought of or invented yet. But in these moments, when, you're, when he strikes you in the heel, you're going to crush his head. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, we look and see Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great what? nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Father Abraham, you're going to have a son and that son is going to bless all the nations of the earth. What well, did that happen through Isaac? No, it didn't. What about Jacob? No. Judah? No. But there is a son that's coming from his family that all nations will know about one day. That all nations will come. And this is a prophecy about there is coming someone from the family of Abraham that will bless all the nations of the earth. We look at Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10. Father Jacob now, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name turns into Israel. They, he has 12 sons. And of these sons, at one point, he starts giving out blessings on his deathbed to all of them. The fourth son is named Judah. And it says... Judah, he's literally on his deathbed. He looks at Judah, his son, and says, You're a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, and who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Amen. Now, the scepter is only one person supposedly supposed to hold the scepter. Well, who's that? The king, right? Before Israel even had a king, it says... 
The scepter is not going to depart from Judah. So somebody in the family of Judah is going to get this. Did my microphone go off? Okay, here we go. Um, Somebody from the family here is going to come along and change everything. So he says, uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his what? Between his feet until a tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of who? Peoples. It doesn't say one people there, does it? It says all the peoples. And so there is a sense that even at this moment where Jacob is on his deathbed, and he is saying something that is so critical for us to understand, he is saying that out of all those boys that Jacob has, out of the 12 boys that he has, right? Hello. Out of the 12 boys that he has, Reuben is the firstborn. But the king's not coming from Reuben. Benjamin is the last one born, but the king's not coming from Benjamin. It's number four. And through this, Judah would be seen, which is incredible because if you think about these stories at the very end of Genesis, out of all the brothers that could have helped out, you remember when Joseph is in power there, right? You remember Joseph's in power? Um, and all the brothers come in, they're looking for food. They don't know it's Joseph. Joseph knows it's them. And all of a sudden he puts kind of this like little trick on them, kind of see if they've changed. And he, he says, I'm going to take Benjamin because of his crimes. And Benjamin says, I, I didn't do anything. And, and then all of a sudden there's only one son, one son only that steps up and goes, I can't go back to my father if this son doesn't come back home. It is Judah. Judah says, take me instead of him because I cannot bear to go face my father if I don't bring him home. Now, from that family would come someone who would say, I'm not going back to my father unless I bring sons and daughters home. And when he goes, he, he's going, right? And so, so here's this point of throughout the family of uh, Judah, the king will come and the king will not depart from there. So if you look at Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy, you're going to say Isaac, Jacob, um, Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah come through the lineage where Jesus is. Uh, you go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses writes this down and says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. Moses says, you've listened to me, but let me tell you, there's another one coming. There's another one coming that you need to make sure that you're prime, you're ready. You're ready to listen to when the time is right. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it speaks of a time when there's a king by the name of David. He says, and I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is when David said, I want to build you a house, God, and God goes, he can't but I'll build you one. No, no, no. I, I want to build you a house where we can worship you. And he's like, ah, you're made of bloodshed. Somebody else has got to build that house. But David, I'm going to build you one. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. Oh, so this is going to be King Solomon, right? Maybe. Or he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll tell you this, Solomon was a pretty good king, but he did not last forever, folks. Not, not, not Solomon, not the kings after him. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A father and a son relationship. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. It speaks of the people of God when he comes alongside. He says, this one is going to come, though. Out of all the people in their sin, I'm appointing a king who's going to come and change everything. Psalm chapter 22. You might remember this phrase where it says, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Who quoted that psalm, by the way? Jesus. Jesus did when he was on the cross, right? So when he's on the cross, he says, Eli, Eli, Lamech, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People go, ah, that's Psalm 22. We know that psalm. We sing it in church, right? That's what they start doing. I want you to turn to Psalm 22 because there's just too many things here in this psalm that I can get at. Um, but I want us to take a moment here. Psalm chapter 22. Because what Jesus did when he's on the cross are seven statements that he says upon the cross. I think what he was wanting those people around them to do is to go, Oh, I remember that song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wonder why Jesus is singing that song. And when you read the psalm, you realize what Jesus was doing. Y'all might want to study this one. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you remember the passerbys? You put your hope in God, why don't you let him save you then? Save him. Why why can't he get you off the cross if you're so holy, right? You see what Jesus is doing? You might want to read this chapter. Open it back up. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the what? Now, I know that God has shaped every single one of us in the womb, but there is something else going on here. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. He is saying, look, this is a different type of birth, and he's highlighting uh, for us to pay attention to. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Sometimes the bulls were actually equated to the Roman Empire or sometimes a uh, imagery that they would use. It says, I'm poured out like water and all of my bones are out of what? Joint. Um, when Jesus died, one of the things that they did realize about him that... Uh, when crucifixion would take place, a lot of times what would happen is that they had a cross beam at which they wanted the hand stretched out. And if you couldn't reach from the right to the left, they would just pull your arms out of socket. So you'd reach there. So we're going to see there's there's no bones broken on him, but the amount of what is out of socket and out of joint and, and damaged is very, very serious at this point. Because my heart is like wax. It has melted within my breast. Uh, my strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Do you remember one of the other seven statements that Jesus said when he's on the cross? I thirst. I thirst. <laughs> Thirsty. Why? Because when you lose that much blood and your and your heart starts pumping over time, you're basically you're starting to dehydrate. So the tongue is so uh, so dry that Jesus. Uh, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. You know what that was? Sedative. Take the pain away. So many soldiers go, Jesus, just come on. They, they beat you beyond even recognition. Just take some of this wine. He refuses it. Doesn't want anything to soften the blow of God's wrath that he's willing to take for us. But then later he goes, I thirst. And they give him a thing of sour wine. That don't sound too good, Right? Doesn't sound like anything that I want to have. Why would they have that there? Well, they had it there for a lot of different reasons. But why did Jesus take that? Because his vocal cords were so dry, he could barely say anything left. So he says, I thirst. And then they give him enough. And it wets his whistle so he can say one last thing. It is finished. Loud enough so the whole crowd can hear. On, on this moment, he's... He's dried up like a pop shear. His bones are out of joint. It's, he lays in the dust of death. And when it says, my heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. Most doctors who have looked at the gospel accounts believe that Jesus actually had a heart attack on the cross. What's taking place is he's lost so much. The blood's pumping so much. that when he knows, when he's saying it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there is a, he knows. And especially when they, they put the spear in his side, when water and blood separate, that means that the heart has stopped. So all these little fishermen are just taking notes. Sounds weird when they pierce the sides like water and blood kind of separated when it came out. And all later modern doctors are going, we know what that is. They, they see that his heart is literally, uh, keep going. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Once again, another reference to probably the, the Roman soldiers there, what sometimes we called. A company of evildoers encircles me. Um, who was Jesus surrounded by on the cross? He was, what's cross? This guy? This guy, circle around, evildoers, right? Besides Jesus, if you go on the cross, you deserve it, right? You, you, you earned that spot. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Do you realize that when Psalm 22 was written, crucifixion had yet to been invented? 
about 600 years before crucifixion ever been invented, the song goes up, says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. People go, why would they do that? The psalmist just writes it down. I can count all my bones. Why can you count all your bones? Because none of them are broken. You know why? Because the sacrificial Passover lamb in the book of Exodus could not have a broken bone and neither could Jesus. Most people died on the cross because when the sun was going down, they needed to speed things up. They'd go up and break the legs of the guy so that what he's holding on to, he collapses and he can't breathe anymore because his diaphragm completely closes up. They get to Jesus and he's already dead. Why? To fulfill this prophecy, his bones would not be broken. He'd already had a heart attack at this point. Um, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Is this specific enough for anybody here? Hundreds of years before Jesus. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. It goes on down there. Uh, look at verse 22. I will tell your name to my brothers. He's speaking to all the disciples, all the other countrymen that he's around. Um, goes on down. Look to... Um, if you look, there's so many wonderful things here, but like verse 30, it says, Posterity shall serve him. This is what posterity means, the future generations. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Kind of sounds like it is finished, doesn't it? He's done it. It's finished. It's, it's good. Um, there's more at play when Jesus is putting all these things together to know that Jesus is, there is an anticipation of what even all the scriptures look to. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. As far as I check, there's only one birth in all of history that can match that. Right? Only one birth. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, you look at Isaiah chapter 53, once again, uh, I had a friend who read Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is what he said. It was a Jewish friend that he had. He said, I want to read you a verse from my scripture. You tell me who you think, if you know who it is. And he doesn't show him. He's reading from Isaiah. He reads Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He goes, in your Bible, that's probably speaking about Jesus. He goes, actually, it's in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Who do you think it's speaking of? He was pierced for our transgressions hundreds of years before crucifixion had ever yet even been invented. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Uh, the most common reference that Jesus gives of himself is not the Son of God, but it is the Son of, you might know, man. And most people go, oh, yeah, Jesus was trying to say he was a guy, right? He's a guy like the rest of us. You know, he's a man. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the coming Messiah figure. And there is one phrase that he used to describe him. It is the son of man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So here is this Messiah-like figure coming to the Eternal One, the Ancient of Days. He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion uh, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is this picture, okay? So now you understand, why did all these Jewish people get really upset when he goes, y'all can call me the Son of Man? They go, what? What did you say? We just think he's kind of relating to us. He's going, no, I'm relating to that. I'm related to the Messiah, the one that is to come, of whom all glory and kingdoms will come before him. Last one uh, that we'll do, and I promise you there are many, many others. But it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. All right. Um, I come from a city called Greenwood, South Carolina. You know what happens in Greenwood? Not a lot, okay? We got a couple Chick-fil-A's, that's good for us. But that, 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 that's about it, okay? There's not a lot going on. There's even a community on the side of Greenwood that's even smaller than that. It's a, a city called 96. I don't know if any of y'all even know, heard of 96. If you've been to 96, you know South Kakalaki, okay? You know 96. Bethlehem is somewhere in between like a Greenwood and a 96, okay? 
it's a small, small town where a whole lot of stuff doesn't happen. And some prophet in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, said, oh, in little old 96, right, a little old Greenway, and, and in Bethlehem, the ruler is going to be born. All right, well, there's a lot of people who can be born. But what do you know about this one who's going to be born, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days? He's going to be born, but he's been around a while. He's going to be born. He's going to come take place. But let me just tell you, his, his origins are from old. Eternity, if you will. And this is the precision at which all of these things. So when the New Testament comes along and begins to point to Christ, it's saying, let me show you how Jesus checks all of these boxes. The incarnation of the Christ, that, that word we use at Christmas time, right? And I know it's April, but I'll also say this. The birth of Jesus Christ should be something we should celebrate every single day. Because it was that beginning of that message, of the mission that he came to rescue us. Incarnate comes from Latin and means in the flesh. The in means in the carnus is flesh. So we say the incarnation of Christ is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. God in the flesh came among us. So, so in the flesh. Now what's interesting is, you remember while Jesus, while Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, it's not because they lived in Bethlehem, Joseph's family was from Bethlehem, Right? So he came from the lineage of David. And the reason why he went back to that hometown where a lot of you go, well, I grew up in such and such, but I don't go back there anymore. The only reason why Joseph went back to his hometown was somebody declared that a census needed to take place, right? Caesar wanted to take a census to take place. And he goes, I want everybody to go back to your hometown. And he probably went, like a lot of us would go to the government officials, but do you see my betrothed? She is great with child. And I don't have a minivan just yet. And I would like not to have to ride a donkey and go all this thing from where I live in Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. And Caesar goes, nope, everybody go back to the hometown. Why? Because Caesar wanted to see how big his kingdom was. I want to count. Everybody from Bethlehem, everybody from Jerusalem, I want to see how many people follow me. How many people am I under authority of? And that's what's so brilliant about how and when Jesus came. Because in a moment... There's an earthly man trying to show how impressive he is by the numbers that he has. Forcing everybody to go. What he doesn't know is God is using him to get Mary to Bethlehem. So that at the time of this birth happens right at the right time. Caesar wanted to show how great he was by elevating himself above the people. But God showed how great he was by becoming one of the people. In this moment, while Caesar is saying, let me count to see how many I got. Let me count to see how impressive I am. God shows how great he is. He becomes one of his people. He is born into this world. And I cannot think of a more humbling thing in the world than to be the God of all creation, that heaven to be your home, to be entered into this world the way that he was. The birth of Jesus introduced the world to its long-awaited Savior, folks. When Jesus came, the angels made no mistake to those shepherds that they told. The one that you've been waiting for has come. And this child, this Savior, will change absolutely everything. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That word, it means gospel. I bring you the gospel of what great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, Messiah the Lord. This is the, the message. Folks, you've been waiting for a Savior. Guess what? He's here. He's finally here. And the wonderful truth that came because as a result of that. Now, Jesus' humility was shown by emptying himself to become a human, born in a small town, delivered in a manger, and announced to people on the fringes. The most incredible thing about the humility in which Christ came is, once again, the fact of God wrapping himself in flesh, wrapping himself in baby flesh, if you will, being dependent upon his mother to help him get to point A to point B, delivered in a manger that is a feeding trough for animals, and he announced to people in the fringes, not the kings, not the authorities, but if people had a low job on the outskirts of the community, their job was so low in that community they had to be on the outskirts of town, that's who came first. Because folks, Jesus had not come for all those in uh, popular um, uh, and places of authority, but he came for those on the fringes like you and I. Uh, the consecration of the Christ, as we move through the life of Jesus, we see this aspect. And what is interesting about that we, we know, um, that not much is known about Jesus from age 2 to age 30. Okay, Not, not much is known 
In fact, there's a lot of people go, oh, I wish we had some more information. Like, what was, what was Jesus like during this time? Uh, but beyond Jesus' birth, uh, and the shepherds come alongside that, somewhere around two years later, the wise men or the magi show up. And the reason that we know it's two, um, it, it says that as they came, that um, Herod uh, asked, what, what, what time did the stars show up? And they said, about two years ago. We've been traveling since then. And, um, and so Herod wipes out all the baby boys there two years and younger, which means he thinks Jesus is probably close to that two-year mark. So I know the nativity set at your home says they were there on, on uh, Jesus' birth, but they most likely they were not there. They came later, uh, and it seems even because the, the word that they used to describe Jesus, he's more of an adolescent kind of going around the house, probably you know messing with stuff on the table, right, at that time when they show up. Um, so with this, so besides 2 to 30, we don't know a lot. We do know some things. Um, at a young age, Jesus impressed the religious leaders and showed commitment to the work of his father. Uh, remember that time where Jesus' family went to the temple? And they misplaced him, <laughs> right? Okay, right? Yeah. Uh, now, some of you, okay, you don't know if you've ever read that story and you think, God, out of all the mamas that you could have given, Mary can't even keep up with Jesus, right? Okay, you probably in your mind think, how do you lose a child, right? Okay, how, how, how do you lose a child? And some of you are like, don't ask me, that happened one time. Okay, just for a couple hours, but we found them, you know, everything's fine. Um, but in this situation, uh, 12-year-old, 16-year-old boys were seen a lot more as men, you know, than, than what we will see today. A lot of times, uh, Jesus is somewhere most likely in the 12-ish range, uh, and, and they were in a caravan of, of kind of a bigger party of a family. And so it's, you know, y'all watch Home Alone. You know how this kind of stuff works, right? I mean, you can, you can think the kid's in the van, and then all of a sudden it's somebody else's kid in the van, and you're going, hey, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. If it's everybody's responsibility in the family, it's nobody's responsibility, right? That's why it's always like, how many kids you got in your car? How many kids do I got? Let's just make sure we, we got the head count, right? So all of a sudden they, they rush back. They realize Jesus isn't there. They head back to the temple, and Jesus is hanging out there with the old guys, <laughs> literally making their heads hurt making comments, asking questions, and they're like, whose boy is this? Like, we don't even know where he came from. We don't see his parents. They're, they're nowhere around, right? And, and, and at this young age, Jesus impressed them, uh, just religious leaders. And so Mary and Joseph obviously came in, and, and they're a little frustrated with, with Jesus, and they look at him and go, what? Why did you do this to me? Well, you've literally, I felt like my heart is about to explode. Like, why would you do this? And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Your father's house is back there, boy. <laughs> what, what do you mean? And he was at this early age, there's just something different uh, about a young man who would know the word so well and want to be in the temple with his father, uh, learning and teaching and all those wonderful things about it. So that's really the only thing that we know about between 2 and 30. That, that's kind of the moment. In verse 52 of that, it does say that Jesus was increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He was developing, right? Um, and yet, throughout all of this, he, he never, ever sins. Now, right before his ministry starts, somebody else's ministry starts. It's his cousin. John the Baptist cleared the path for the ministry of Jesus. Um, John the Baptist comes along. He is Jesus' cousin. Uh, and he's kind of the, the, the front runner, right? He's, the, he's the, the opening act, if you will. He's the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He clears the path for ministry of Jesus. He constantly is telling people, hey, get out the way. He's coming. They're like, John, are you the Messiah? He's like, are you kidding me? I can't even untie that man's sandals. Don't worry. You, when you see him, you're going to know him. You baptize him with water. Oh, he's going to baptize with fire, right? He's going to be different when he shows up. You need to prepare when this comes in Matthew 3 3 it says for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight it's kind of um it's imagine this have you ever been worshiping distracted by somebody somebody just acting the fool or whatever just like just calm down whatever like you know just somebody just like it's almost like they're doing something just over and over and distracting you it's kind of picture like get all those distractions out the way get your eyes ready why because he's coming. He's coming. One day all these people are going out in the wilderness listening to John the Baptist preach. They're asking all these questions. And all of a sudden he stops the sermon and goes, Hey, behold, there he is. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And they look at this carpenter's son like, what? Who? This guy? And uh, Jesus requests something shocking to John the Baptist. He asked him to do what? Baptize him, right? John baptized Jesus in order for Christ to identify with our sinful condition. Once you get this, okay? Was Jesus baptized because he needed cleansing? No. The, 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 the ritual at that time um, was this belief. They were coming down to repent for the kingdom of God is at heaven. And there was this purification sense of like you're being washed down into the Jordan River. And when you come up, it's this picture of God forgiving you of your sins and washing it off. So why would Jesus go into the water? Well, um, I, I mentioned Greenwood I grew up in. If, you, if, you know, uh, if you've ever been to Greenwood, you might have been to a place called Lake Greenwood. If you've ever been to Lake Greenwood, when you swim in Lake Greenwood, that's why your chances of getting COVID goes really, really far down. Because if you can swim in Lake Greenwood for a while, there's not a lot of sickness that can hit you. Now, now y'all may have never been to Lake Greenwood, but y'all know those creeks I'm talking about in South Carolina, those lakes that I'm talking about? Like, if you if you made it through that, you, you'll be fine, no matter what can come your way. This is the picture, because when you go in some of those waters, right, that you can't see the bottom of, and you don't know what's in there, when you come up out of it, what's on you? Just get yeah, green stuff, right? Okay, like, well, what is all that that's on me? I don't think that's normal, okay? Whatever it is, you go down into water. When you come out, whatever's in the water ends up on you. So when Jesus goes down into water, what's happening? All of what has been ceremonially washed off of the sinners now is placed upon Jesus. He comes up out of water for a new mission. Now I'm going to the cross to pay for the sins of those people. It's going to be truly washed away. This picture of when Jesus actually comes up out of the water. That's why I love baptism, right? When he comes up out of the water, you know what happens when I, when I see a face come up out of the water? The waters divide. And what should be a grave, right, comes up and <gasps> there's life. It's kind of like the Red Sea. Waters part, walk through on dry ground, enemies defeated underneath the waters, but yet you come out alive. We are buried in our sins and transgressions, but God brings us back to life. The waters part and we walk to the promised land. So if we think through, John baptizes Jesus, but as soon as it's baptized, the next thing that is so amazing is that we come to this place called uh, the temptation of the Christ. After Jesus' baptism, the Spirit leads him to the wilderness where Satan tempts him. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're starting your ministry, this does not seem like the ideal place to get it going, right? But once Jesus is baptized... Make sure you get this. Look what Matthew 4, 1 says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit leads him to this place called the wilderness. How long is he going to be there, by the way? Anybody remember? 40 days. 40 days, right? Do you remember another group of people that had something to do with the wilderness or something to do with 40? Israel for 40 years cannot stay obedient and Jesus does in 40 days what they could not do in 40 years. He goes to the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy and over and over and over he's given opportunities to sin and yet he does not. Uh, just know this, Jesus doesn't argue with Satan in this temptation. He just simply quotes scripture to him. He goes back and forth what these Israelites could not do. Uh, Satan looks at Jesus and says, you hungry? Jesus said, I've been in fasting for 40 days. You know I'm hungry. Why don't you just turn these stones and become bread? I know you like those bread sticks that Olive Garden has. Come on, just, you know, turn them into bread. Turn them into bread. What you want, right? And some of y'all will be like, if I had the opportunity to turn rocks into bread, ooh, I would not be gluten-free, right? It'd be on, okay, right? And Jesus says to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What does he do? Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. When you quote Deuteronomy, you mean business, right? Okay, like this is, this is not, I'm quoting John 3, 16, Jesus wept kind of stuff. Like this is, I'm quoting Deuteronomy. Jesus had the word so firmly in his soul that when temptation came his way, he said, I won't listen to what I want, what you want me to do. I will do what God has willed me to do. Kept coming back to it. Jesus was fully God, fully man, yet he never sinned. Fully God and fully man, yet he never sinned. Being fully man, could Jesus have sinned there in the wilderness? The answer is, yeah, he could have. But he didn't. Because he loved his father too much. 
He knows that God's ways were too much. So he leaves out and to out of the this place of temptation and goes to a time of selection. And what I mean by that is one of the first things that Jesus does when he emerges from the wilderness is he gathers a group of ragtag believers to follow him. Jesus chose ordinary men to be his disciples and to do extraordinary works alongside him. This is what's absolutely beautiful about it. He calls Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and you name it, all, all these guys here, and yet none of them would most likely even come up on the radar of any church's pastoral search. Nobody, right? Nobody want these guys. There's nothing about them. But Jesus didn't call the qualified. He qualified the called. And so what happens here is he does not look for all the people who got it all together. He calls these people and said, now I'm going to help you get it together. And I'm going to teach you the ways. Because at one point, even though Jesus is fully God, we know God is um, omnipresent, which means everywhere. Jesus, as, in a, as a physical man, cannot be in all places at all times. But if he disciples these 12 men, guess what? Now, instead of one location, there could be 13 locations. If these men go and disciple, it's no longer 12, but it could be 144. You see where this happens? And so the whole process, he, he calls along these people. Jesus' job assignments for the disciples were out of Mark 3, 13, and 19. Number one, to be with him, to preach, and have authority over demons. That was the original job description, right? Um, that'd be a great job description. We got to rewrite mine soon. I'm be like, this is my job description. To, to, to be with Jesus, to preach, and have authority over demons. I like that. Okay, this is my job. This is what I do. What's, uh, what, Monday, I'm going to do one of three of those three, three things, okay? I'm either going to be with Jesus, I'm going to preach to somebody, or I'm going to get some demons out of folks. Okay, like that. This is the job, right? But in reality, this is the job of what he calls any of us to do, to be with him, to nurture our relationship with him, to proclaim the message of the good news of Jesus, and to push back the works of the enemy wherever we go. This was the job description of anybody who called into this disciple. The entirety of Jesus' strategy focused on the need to multiply his ministry among his disciples. It was not just what he could do on this earth, but what he could do to empower other people Robert Coleman's great book in the 1960s called The Master Plan of Evangelism said he did not always, Jesus did not call the crowds together, but he equipped the men of whom the crowds would follow once he was gone. This was the process of how he selected these men together. And as he gathered these men, he started to teach people. It's a revelation, God revealing truth through him. Jesus initiated his ministry when he taught from the Old Testament about the Messiah's identity. So as he's gathered these disciples together, his ministry is beginning. He one time goes to his hometown. He's in the synagogue, and everybody goes back, Ah, Jesus is back. Joseph's boy. Mary's boy. Ah, look, Jesus, you, you, you've grown so much. Look at that beard. Man, you just got everything together. How's the carpentry business going? You're age 30. This is the, the year when uh, Jewish boys can become rabbis if you want to. Hey, Jesus is here. Why don't you read the scripture passage for the day? Any passage you want to read. She starts walking through the scrolls. No, don't want Jeremiah. No, not Daniel today. No Psalms. I want Isaiah. Picks up Isaiah, unrolls that bad boy, and reads these words. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. No commentary, Jesus? No illustration? No thing you want to unpack for us? No. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And this is one of the moments I just wish I could be in the room for. And he began to say to them, Oh, you question what just happened? Yeah, today the scripture has just been fulfilled in your hearing. Just so you know. It started. Get ready. He, this is the most mic drop moment in all of history. He reads the role of the Messiah out to his hometown and says, the one in the Spirit of the Lord has come on to proclaim gospel to other people and to reach out to people who seem unreachable, that just got fulfilled right here. And some of the people said, who do you think you are? And other people in the room go, we know who he thinks he is, <laughs> right? He's not making any, any uh, doubt about who he thinks he is. He begins teaching and Jesus revealed God's word through his authoritative teaching. That's one of the things that when people hear Jesus speak over and over and over again, they just said, he's got authority when he teaches. There's something different about him. Man, we got rabbis and we got all their books and all their podcasts and all their stuff and we listen to them, but there's something different when Jesus gets up the mic. 
When he starts talking, he, does, he doesn't speak like one of them. He speaks with authority. Matthew 7, 28 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Verse 29, For he was teaching them not as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Uh, be careful here, but have you ever heard somebody who might be saying correct theology, but it just kind of feels flat? When they deliver it, you go, do you believe what you're saying? You know, I'm, I'm not asking for like, be somebody or not, but you you tell me that Jesus died for me and you sound miserable when you're doing it, right? I mean, the scribes are kind of, they're saying the right stuff, right? There was something about different Jesus. And when he said, repent, he meant it. When he said, turn off that old stuff you're into, everybody thought, and he's in my business now, right? There, there was just a different level to his teaching and everybody could feel it. Through teaching parables, Jesus' lessons were easily transferable. This is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus' brilliance when he was on earth. Most of his sermons, most of his teaching had to do with parables. You know why? Because everybody didn't have a Bible app on their phone. Nobody had a small copy of the Bible even on their bookshelf. So he's teaching the way of the kingdom, and he has to do it in an oral culture where a lot of them cannot have experience. They're not, nobody's got a YouTube clip of it. Nobody's got a podcast of it. So he says, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Yeah, we want to know. He doesn't say, here's 14 points of how it's like. He says, it's like a guy who found a treasure in a field. And he knew that treasure was such a game changer that he went and buried that treasure in a field, asked if anybody knew about anything going on there. And somebody said, no, but I know the guy's selling it. And that guy goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy that field because he wants that treasure so much. That's what the kingdom's like. I didn't just quote that scripture to you, but I got pretty much all the details in there. You know why? We remember stories. And Jesus taught stories in a way that just people locked on to and they could tell other people. And so they would start sharing. Oh, he told this one time, Man, there's this prodigal son. You know what he did with his dad? And you won't believe it. Man, there's this guy that got beat up and you will not believe who came to his aid. It was a Samaritan. A Samaritan, what? And it, these stories he would tell over and over and, and people just walk away remembering it. In uh, Matthew 13, 34 and 35, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. He taught the ways of the kingdom in ways that could be remembered. Jesus' intense words of eternal life made some walk away and some unable to walk away. At one point, after Jesus had fed 5,000, he looks at a group of people who came back and then he said, What you here for? And they're like, oh, We're here for you, Jesus. He's like, No. You want another handout of a free meal, aren't you? I know what you're here for. You came for more food. You came because your bellies are full and you dumped all the leftovers from the 5,000. Let me tell you, you want a meal, everybody? And they're like, all right, Jesus is going to, the disciples are like, this is going to be good right here. What are you going to do, Jesus? He goes, you want a meal? You want a good one? You like the loaves? You like the fishes? I'll give you one better. My flesh. Y'all eat my flesh. Drink my blood. And Peter and the guys are like, what is he doing? Right? He's going to lose. We got all this momentum going. What is he? Cannibalism? Like, this is ridiculous. What are you talking about? Eating flesh, drinking my blood. And at that moment, guess what happens? People start walking away. Jesus said, John 6, 66 says, After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? There's the door. <laughs> hey, everybody's leaving. It's time to go. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. When you hear the words of Jesus, you can't go back to riffraff anymore. Amen. Can't. Those words are eternal life, and they knew it. Okay, this is hard teaching. It's hard for us to understand what you're trying to say. All the crowds are leaving. We've left everything, but where else are we going to go? We've been with you. There is nowhere to go. The last thing to know about the person of Christ, of something that's so foundational about his character. So I call it supplication to Christ. Supplication is a way to speak of prayer. And you need this to know that with all the incredible works that the disciples beheld, they only asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Only one thing. Not Jesus, can you teach me how to walk on water? Can you teach me how to feed 5,000 people? Can you teach me how to raise this, heal that? They didn't ask that. You know what one day they did, though, get together? Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John the Baptist, he taught his disciples. 
Because Jesus, when you pray, something happens. Out of all the things we could ask, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? They've been watching listening to them. Teach us. We want to pray like you. Jesus' ministry constantly revolved around his prayer life. Constantly. So much of what happened revolved around his prayer life. And within the Lord's Prayer, we see a consistent template with which to pray. We'll end here tonight, but in the Lord's Prayer, we often think that somehow Jesus was teaching us something to repeat. But instead of something to repeat, I believe it's a template of what the kind of things we ought to pray. Pray to our Father. Right? It's not a far, far off God, but he's, he's our Father. Notice this about the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's never a... Um, it's always a plural pronoun. It's not my Father. Give me my daily bread. Forgive me my sins. It's our. It's us. It's us together. And so he, he says, when, when you pray, you pray to your Father, our Father, who's so close that we want to call him Father, but yet he lives in heaven. So he's close, but man, he transcends all. We're going to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I think about the type of way that people serve God in heaven, I imagine that when God says he needs something, there's angels stampeding to see who gets there first. And this prayer is, let's pray that it happens on earth just the way it happens there. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us enough of what we need. I'm not asking for tomorrow's jelly. I'm asking for today's bread. I'm not asking for more than what I need. I'm asking for my needs to be met. God, lead us not to temptation, right? But deliver us from evil. I missed one there. Like, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? God, God, this is the way we love to pray, right? God, will you forgive me the amount of people, the way that I forgive other people? <laughs> Lord, will you forgive me more than how I forgive other people is what I want to pray? But he said, no, no, no. When you pray, praying, you need to be asking for forgiveness for your sins, but you need to be thinking about what kind of relational stuff you need to work on. Don't leave me in the temptation, God. When the temptation comes, sound the alarm. Let, let, let us make sure we know. Keep us from the evil one. Watch over us. And we believe that God's kingdom is, is the center piece of it all. We look at the person of Jesus Christ, and we're going to finish up next week looking at the work of what he done. Uh, folks, you can spend your entire life studying the words of Scripture, and I am like the last verse in John, chapter 21, verse 25, where John wrote these things. Ready for this? And there are many other things that I guess could be written about Jesus. And if they were written in detail, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We know this much of what Jesus did in 33 years of life. John said, if I were to write, write them all down, the whole world couldn't contain all the books that would be written about him. We've given you peace. And the peace that we have will transform you. The more that we study, the more that we know him, the more that we come to love him. And so, King Jesus, tonight as we pray, we just thank you that you saw us in our sin and you did not leave us there, but you came looking for us. Tonight, as we study this Christology, we study who you are, let it cause us to worship you. Let it cause us to repent of our ways, to lay our sins down, and to want to follow you closely. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.